Yeah, just for context, because uh, not everybody's been here for the last few weeks, we're exploring this theme that we've called living a life of mutual benefit. It's exploring the Noble Eightfold Path, which is really at the core of these the Buddha's teachings. And so tonight I wanted to look a little more at that third one of the eight factors, which is wise speech that John introduced last week. And you might remember he referred to the movie Groundhog Day as an example of how the underlying attitude in the mind, the heart and the mind, conditions how we speak, how we act, in ways that are either beneficial or harmful. And that benefit or harm then rebounds on us. So in the movie, the character who was played by Bill Murray had to keep going through the same day over and over and over until he finally realized that truth, that how we are in the world has consequences. So to put it in classical Buddhist terms, it's about karma. That understanding the actions of body, of speech, of mind, that are motivated by unskillful mental states, have harmful results for others, for ourselves. And of course the opposite. What we think, say and do when it's grounded in skillful motivations has beneficial results for ourselves, for others. Now, that's a huge topic. There's a lot we could say about that. For now, I want to keep in mind that this karma is not one simple linear strand. It's in reality, multiple feedback loops that are all feeding into each other, playing out over time. So often we can't exactly say, well, because you did that, that happened there. It's not that simplistic. But what is, we can see, I think, perhaps more with speech, at least this is my experience, speech is one area where what comes out here does often very quickly <laughs> come back the other way if it's harmful. Does that feel true for people? Mm. We often get pretty immediate feedback when our speech is not in the terrain of uh, beneficial. The other aspect of karma that I want to highlight is perhaps because of our underlying Judeo-Christian heritage, we perhaps tend to put a lot of weight on the negative, you could say, side of karma, and tend to think in terms of what we've done wrong, where we don't measure up how we should be better, what we didn't get right, and so forth. And we overlook all the skillful stuff that most of us are doing most of the time, especially the people in this room, or you wouldn't even be here, right? So we want to keep in mind that we're also, also always strengthening these skillful motivations. So a few weeks ago I talked about this whole practice as being a process of crafting the heart or shaping the heart. You could say polishing the heart. And it's this understanding of the eightfold path that helps us steer, shape, sculpt our lives in a beneficial direction. So that understanding of karma is the first path factor, an aspect of right or wise view. And when we understand this cause and effect relationship, we pretty naturally move into the second factor, right intention. 
And we want to ground what we do in renunciation, letting go of greed, in kindness, letting go of aversion, in compassion, letting go of harming. So those are all aspects of wise intention. And when our hearts and minds are aligned with those intentions, pretty obviously we have a better chance of thinking, speaking, acting in ways that are skillful, beneficial rather than harmful. So again, just perhaps stating the obvious, most of us here, most of the time, are probably not engaging in the more coarse, you could say, aspects of unethical behavior. So probably not going around killing living beings, maybe an ant or two, but for the most part, not killing living beings. Does that feel true? Yes? Not stealing? Not misusing our sexuality in ways that cause harm? Probably not getting drunk, not getting high? What about the other precepts? What's the one I've left out? Speech, yeah. Which initially is about not lying, but also not using divisive speech, not using harsh speech, and refraining from idle chatter. So of those five ethical arenas, which one is the hardest? Pretty, yeah, speech. Shy the idle chatter. Yeah, but even just in terms of the five <laughs> precepts, speech, yeah, refraining from idle chatter, yeah. So it's, I think, from what I can tell, pretty unanimous that this is an area of our training that most people find challenging, especially as you're saying, when we get into the nuances of it. So I'm pretty sure everyone here has been on the receiving end of harmful speech at some point. Is that true? Mm -hmm. And probably also true, all of us at some point have been the perpetrator of some harmful speech. Mm -hmm. So we have pretty immediate experience of what it's like, the distress both ways of having been deeply hurt or having hurt someone else. So we know for ourselves the power of speech to create pain, to permanently damage our relationships, and on a national level, to start wars. And especially these days when we have social media and all these different platforms that can spread our words exponentially beyond the original context, what we say, what we write has even more power to cause harm on a greater scale than it did in the Buddha's day. So Greg Kramer describes the conditioning power of communication. He says, once unleashed into the world, a communication acts to condition the minds of others. It initiates cascading sequences of effects between speaker and listener and can spread rapidly and broadly among people. These effects can take a long time to work themselves out and can be as surprising as they are potent. Because what we speak influences our world, our relationships and the society we live in, the speech act returns to condition us yet again. 
So I wanted to highlight that because sometimes in mainstream society we tend to dismiss the power of words and think, well, I just said that. It's not like I hit them or, you know. And we have that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Who believes that? <laughs> I, the very first time I heard it as a little kid, I thought, well, that's not right. <laughs> I think we've all had hurts from words that it may have taken years to heal. So we know directly the power of words to cause harm. But even speech that we might you know, think of as trivial, inconsequential, it can still have unintended effects. So I was contemplating this recently because uh, I caught up with an old friend from many years ago you know, now that I'm back in New Zealand more consistently, I've been able to catch up with people that I knew from quite a while back, from another era of my life, you could say, from 20 or 30 years ago before I got involved in Dharma. And I was with one of these friends a few months ago, and we were driving through Ponsonby to go for dinner somewhere. And she suddenly said, oh, we can't go down that street, because that's the street you hate. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> And she said, I think of you every day. I said, every time I see that street, I think of you because you are always so rude about it. <laughs> really? At first I thought she was talking about someone else because I couldn't remember the street that she was talking about. And I didn't, I didn't recognize the street. And I didn't recognize the person who would have been rude about a street. Like, why would you be rude about a street? I don't know. And did I hate that street so much that she still remembered it 25 years later? You know, it was just a slightly strange con. And I remember thinking she must have got me mixed up with someone else. But then I thought, well, maybe she didn't. You know, I was a different person then. But what was slightly shocking to me was that that comment stayed in her mind all of that time. Mm -hmm. And every time she drove past that street, she thought of me and the negative attitude I had to it. <laughs> and, you know, at least it was a street and not a person. And there are, I could probably give you plenty of other examples of things I definitely do remember saying in the past that definitely were harmful. But that example made me wonder about all the other things that I've said without really thinking that had some kind of impact that rippled out. And I realized that when I was with my friend then, that to some extent she was still holding that perception of whoever I was, who was rude about streets 25 years ago, that was still her image of who I was today, which was different from my inner image. So, you know, communication that's got many different aspects to it. And so as I was thinking about my unskillful speech and how it kind of got regurgitated over 25 years, I was thinking about the Buddha's speech that stuck around not just for 25 years, but for 10 times that amount of time, for 2,500, was that 100 times? 100 times, thank you. Maths is not my strong point. So his speech stuck around for 2,500 years. And I started wondering, what if every one of us knew that what we said 
was going to be memorized by other people and recited for 2,500 years. <laughs> Would we perhaps be a bit more careful? I'd like to think so. But that's what happened for the Buddha. People took in what he said, memorized it, chanted it, passed it on to others so that it could change people's lives over generation after generation after generation. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. So what was it about the Buddha's words that made them worthy of transmission and made them still have effect to be transformative even today? So I'm just offering that as a question. Do you have any sense of why? What, what, what was it about his communication that allowed that to happen? Any ideas? Just clean. Clean, yeah. did you say? Without other stuff attached. Yeah, clean, clear, yeah, great. And he kind of shot a roadmap for living. A roadmap for living. So again, there's that sense of clarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was humble about it. Humble, yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be another word that applies, but when he said, don't just take this in, um, don't just take it as gospel, so to speak, but just check it out for yourself. Yes, yeah. So it wasn't self serving. Yeah. 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 So it's a bit like what Adi was saying it's clean, it's not sort of tainted by. His personal agenda. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he had that whole sort of attitude of, or, or didn't have the attitude of, it's my right, it's my right, or it's the highway. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's really refreshing. And I don't know if you could put it in religion or not, but I mean that's really refreshing in religion where you actually have the freedom to make your own choices. Yeah, beautiful. So it gives you the freedom to make your own choices. And it came from his own experience. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it was real um, from somebody who didn't have agendas and um, issues or things in his hand on to. Yeah. So it came from, from that source of a place. It came from his own experience, maybe a direct source. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, my sense is that um, these are all facets of what we could call truth. And that what he found were universal truths that we can recognize today. And so if you remember last week, John gave that quote from the Vacha Sutta, where it's defining why speech is speech that is spoken at the right time, spoken in truth, spoken politely, spoken beneficially, spoken with a heart-mind of good will. So speaking what's true is a crucial aspect of wise speech. But in order to speak what's true, we have to know what's true. So this is where we need the support of the other path factors. So wise mindfulness, knowing what's going on. Wise effort, to put in the effort to be aware. And then wise samadhi, that stability or steadiness of mind so that we can see clearly. So that's what I'd like to explore in the time we have left this evening, to see how speaking from a place of more steadiness, more awareness, more mindfulness and clarity, 
helps us to discern what's true and then to speak what's true, but also as listeners to fully receive and to hear what's true. So in a moment I'm going to invite us, those who would like, to contemplate how we experience the truth. How have we experienced the truth so far in our practice? Because I think everyone here, maybe it's conscious or not, comes along because there's a recognition of some kind of truth, something that's valuable. Does that feel fair to say? Mm-hmm. How do you know that? How do you feel that? How do you recognize that? It's kind of mysterious, for me at least. But there is something recognizable when we hear the truth. I'm sort of doing that because for me it feels like mm, there's a resonant frequency or something that I feel in an embodied way when I receive something that's true. So you're going to be invited to explore your own experience of truth. To, If you can, bring to mind a time when you received what I'm calling a transformational truth of some kind. So some kind of understanding that shifted something in you. It could be something that happened while you're on retreat, some kind of insight. It could be something you heard in a Dharma talk or read in a book or perhaps a friend shared with you. And it just changed your understanding in some way. It could be on a more psychological level. So perhaps uh, reading a, listening to a podcast or reading a book or a friend giving you some feedback in a way that helps you see a pattern. So the key is that there's some sense of recognition of a truth that changed you in some way, that brought about some kind of transformation. So just to be clear, when if you choose to do this with a partner, I'll talk you through it all, but you don't have to be overly revealing, you don't feel any pressure to be vulnerable, you don't have to explore the most profound, intense insight you ever had. You can keep this process on any level that you like. So if your truth was the recognition that you really do prefer Twining's Earl Grey to Dilmar Earl Grey, that's fine. That's your truth. Okay? So we're going to take some time now in pairs and I'll talk you through it. Okay, so thank you for your attention.